0: Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars, and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. Hi and welcome to another podcast with Disruptive HR and today is somebody that I've done some work with I've known for quite a while and her title is an interesting one we'll come back to it she's the VP Global Employee Experience for Oriflame Cosmetics and her name is Elena Aylott did I get that right we've been talking about pronunciation yes that's right hi Lucy Uh, I'm glad glad I haven't been calling you the wrong name all these years so it's (laughs) it's so lovely to see you really great to see you and um just tell us first up a little bit about Oriflame Cosmetics because it's it may not be the kind of high street brand name that people know of very well I'm sure those who are fans of it will really love it and know it but there may be some of our listeners who need a bit of explanation
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. So I work for Oriflame Cosmetics and it's a social selling beauty company. So social selling means that we are not a retail company and we are not e-commerce. We are selling our products, cosmetics products, through our independent brand partners. And this is entrepreneurs who build their businesses around our products and around selling them. So, that's, so
0: They're not employees, right? They're not employees. No, they, they
1: are not employees. So, uh, as for the employees, so we are a global company. We have 6,000 employees in 60, approximately 60 countries around the world. And then, just for you to compare, we have around 3 million brand partners around wow. the world. So, <laughs> those independent entrepreneurs who are selling our products. 3 million. 3 million,
0: exactly. And are they based predominantly in one geography or uh, is it is it predominantly a European thing or an Asian thing or is it just everywhere?
1: It's just everywhere. It's truly global, honestly. And the spread is uh, great. So we are everywhere. Well, I mean, not everywhere. This is our future. But <laughs> at the moment, <laughs>
0: as I said, in approximately 60 countries around the world. And has lockdown meant growth for you? We are,
1: like any other companies, you know, we are finding our ways. Uh, so this is what I can tell you. At the same time, social selling, uh, it's an interesting business because usually it's um, a business when uh, people need some extra earning opportunity. That's how they start with us. And, of course, when there's crisis and a lot of people lose their jobs, um, one of the first things they look it at is the social selling companies. And we have seen people coming to us, but, you know, because the COVID crisis is so different uh, in many aspects, I think it's just still to see what
0: it means. Now, we're talking about lockdown. Obviously, we're in the middle of the crisis right now. And... um, it's fascinating because you're actually in Sweden and, of course, Sweden <laughs> handled it slightly differently, didn't they? Uh, what, what's your, been your impression? What's your views on and, and what's it felt like being in Sweden? Because we've kind of looked at Sweden initially from the UK and thought, oh, God, they're being really risky. And now we're looking at you and you seem to kind of have it together.
1: Well, you know, thank you for the question. Actually, it's it's a very good one. I am originally from Russia, but I have been living in Sweden since two thousand and two. So you know, I I'm sort of Swedish Swedish Swedishized Russian. <laughs> I don't know what's the correct word here. Excuse me. English. And um, you know, the situation is not black and white here. I think that um, as any country, um, we chose the way. What I think is. Um, cannot be ignored is that of course there were deaths of people and of course you know you cannot say that this is a purely perfect way that sweden chose and i think that only future will show if it was right or wrong but of course there are those aspects that we need to take into consideration but when you take myself personally i think that in these circumstances i actually support the swedish uh, approach because for me, and I think we spoke about this, uh, Lucy, before, for me, first of all, it's important that it's a consistent approach. You know, we don't change the strategy. Mm-hmm. And everything we heard from the beginning, it sort of still holds. And I okay. do appreciate this. I think it's very important because when the crisis strikes, you, everything is changing around you. You need to have something to hold on to. Yeah. And I think this was very helpful for people to hold on to something. Yeah. Another thing that I actually value the most, it is what I would call the uh, freedom under responsibility.
0: Mm.
1: We here are told from the beginning what kind of risks the COVID brings, and we are also given recommendations. But then I feel that now it's up to me to take in those recommendations and to follow them. And as a responsible human being, you know, as an adult, and this corresponds quite a lot with what you are writing in your books, you know, I feel empowered mm. because when I am giving this uh, freedom and I am trusted that I will take responsibility, I will for sure do it. Then, of course, there is a lot of debate going on about some people, you know, uh, sort of freeloading on this, and not every everybody following. But I think that again. I think it's much better to focus on the people who are doing it right, because this yeah. is the majority of people. Yeah. I think that the Swedish example shows that people do follow recommendations, you know, and uh, people do take it seriously. Uh, of course, I mean, there are deviations as always, but if you believe in a good thing, I think you'll get a good thing. Yeah, so, I
0: mean, we've talked about this I'm in the past, about, mm-hmm. you know, adult to adult. And of course, of course, there is always then, well, what do you do with the ones who aren't behaving well? But, you know, I think, you know, if we kind of start to move the discussion over to HR, I think, you know, our view would be, um, you gain so much by not designing around the worst behaving. Um, you know, if you design around the lowest common denominator, what do you lose in terms of, I'm not talking about COVID now, but in terms of organization and employees, what do you lose in terms of innovation? What do you lose in terms of customer responsiveness? But it's a trade-off that each organization has got to make for themselves. Now, let's let's talk about your title because uh, employee experience, um, you've actually been focusing on employee experience for a lot longer than a lot of HR professionals. Um, three years already. Is it really three years? I mean, so it was yeah. very new. It was very new as a concept. And you and I had conversations at the time about, you know, the risk of this being just another rebrand for HR, but the content not changing. And you were really clear from the outset that this had to be different. This had to look and feel different and be different. Just give me, um, if you wouldn't mind, because obviously it's been a long time since we've uh, spent time, proper time together, where are you with the employee experience journey? And maybe just first up, why? Why did you choose that route?
1: Well, thank you for a question. You know, it's an interesting one. If if I could choose, I would speak an, uh, a whole day about this. This is my <laughs> topic, absolutely. Uh, I come originally from comms, from communications, and uh, I um, worked with the channels uh, for quite some time in Norway Flame, and I understood that... Um, HR part was underutilized because there was so many content there uh, in our organization but there was nobody really communicating it properly to employees and then I also sort of see saw and I think a lot of other people saw as well that it was like a mismatch between What we communicated around the culture, you know, from the executive team, what events we did, how we, uh, you know, brought together all the brand partners that we have with some processes that we're running within the corporation in the HR area. So I think that was some sort of a catalysator all those three years ago. And um, we decided to think differently. And I think that the first thing I don't want really to uh, be bad towards somebody, but for me, words matter. And yeah. just some words like human resources, FTEs, efficiencies, you know, all these sort of things that we are using in our meetings when we speak about people. It sort of hurt my uh, my feelings from me, <laughs> the, and then I couldn't work with it. And we started looking into what else is available because I understood that if you're stuck in a narrative, you know, you will never change your way of being. And... Uh, we looked at customer experience, and I think that at that time you uh, came out with your book, you know, with HR disruptive, and I think that was a mind shift, absolutely, with your each approach. I mean, that that was fantastic. I'm still using it, you know, in every speech I'm doing <laughs> so, about it. And then also, Jacob Morgan came out. Yeah. With- About employee experience, and at the same time, you know, his podcast was um, very popular, and I listened to Mark Levy uh, from
0: from Airbnb. Yeah,
1: I heard how uh, he built the whole employee experience around this, combining culture with physical space and with technology. And it's somehow it sounded so appealing that we can start looking at employees as customers, as you say, you know, as adults and Because people are people and people have the same um, demands. You know, it's either you're in the shop buying something or getting attached to a brand or you are working, you know, uh, during the daytime in your office. And we understood that if you sort of take away this uh, corporational sort of uh, things uh, from this, you can communicate to people in the same way you communicate to customers and in our way, to our brand partners. So we tried to build this journey you know using the experience we had from brand partners journey from consumer journey and we try to build the journey for our employees in oriflame um looking at their experience and trying to create the special moments for them so trying yeah. to you know what are those moments where you interact with the company and then these moments they should be within our culture they should be colored you know so that when you then retire and you sit and you remember back how it was in Moria flame you will have those vivid memories and that's what we uh try trying to create and i think that this actually um somehow created the mind shift you know how we speak about our people what kind of activities we are doing how we are presenting it to our people and after this there is no turning back so it is very uh, difficult for me now to speak about you know FTEs or (laughs) when we already have people there who are with eyes and ears ears, you know and we want to feel stuff so it's a completely different dimension
0: I would say. And do you feel that uh, the leaders have really got their heads around that now?
1: Absolutely. And you know what? I think that uh, I was lucky because our leaders were always there. We are quite a thin organization, even if we are in so many countries. And we have been working like this with our brand partners from the beginning. You know, and and social selling is built on human interaction. It's a business so this is so natural for us yeah. that it was a no-brainer i think that the bigger question was why didn't we do it before yeah and how can we do it so fast <laughs> that we're already there you know so that's why I was sort of running 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 all the yeah. time trying to catch up but uh, we are finally there and
0: enjoying it I must and i think that um companies that have a um product direct to consumer find it a lot easier to get their heads around it because they're doing it with their customers. They're doing the moments that matter, the surprise and delight. They're looking at how people feel. They're looking at customer journeys. They're looking at user centered design. They're looking at consumer personas, all of those kind of, you know, methodologies, tactics, uh, if you will, that we can adapt and adopt and, and, and they're already doing it. So it's quite easy. I think if you're B2B, type organisation, I think it can be a lot tougher to to get some of the concepts um, ingrained. So let's just um, have a chat now about some of the things that perhaps that have happened during the crisis that um, maybe, you know, we're talking about this idea of better normal in disruptive HR, which is a bit yucky expression, but you know what we're trying to say. Let's not go back to normal. Let's actually create something better, a better normal. And so it'd be good to understand whether at Oriflame, there's some things that you have stopped doing or have started doing that you won't go back to how it was, or you've accelerated some stuff. Is there anything that that springs to your mind that you want to share with our listeners about things that have happened at Oriflame? yes absolutely
1: um, i can probably start with uh, stop doing things because i think that um we uh, we are quite entrepreneurial organization yeah. and of course we have processes because we are a big organization we have product development but at the same time we like being flexible we like taking things spontaneously but because of this we had a lot of alignments to do because you can't just run in different directions. And in our reality, previously, it was quite normal when, you know, there were, for example, four days long meetings when you sit there and listen to presentation after presentation and you sort of then survive until dinner. (laughs) You get up very early and you have some team activity and then you listen again uh, for those presentations. So I think that was my reality for a long time, and not only my, but my colleagues' reality. And with COVID and the virtual meetings, we actually started there as well. We still try to have those long meetings in the same format that we did before, but we very soon understood that it's not possible. You cannot uh, have people's attention. And if you do not have enough con- content to keep you engaged, you will switch off, yeah. and if- You look at me through the screen, but very often you don't because if you use the technology and you show the presentation, you don't see who's looking at you. So people just switched off, you know, like in this uh, sketch that is going around the uh, uh, YouTube, you know, how people sort of like do their own stuff and present the meetings. So I think that this was the learning that finally dawned on us and we stopped doing it. So now we spent quite some time on the meeting formats and we are trying to adopt different you know, uh, rhetoric forms, how to do presentations. We did it before, but mostly in big town halls where we tried Pecha Kucha, we tried TEDx, uh, TED Talks, we tried, you know, elevator pitches, but now it's a reality every day. So it's every day in the meetings, we try to be creative, we try to present the content in an interesting way so that we treat each other, you know, as in real life. Again, you- and adult, the customer. You don't need to know everything I'm doing. How can I uh, deliver my message to you in such a way that you listen? We take a decision here, and we don't waste time. So I think this is a great thing that I think will stay with us. But we definitely stopped doing those long meetings. You know, yeah. with those, uh, big, big presentation.
0: I was um, uh, doing something a webinar last week on learning and development, and I'd got some research which fascinated me that most people will watch a video for four minutes. And then, you know, so we think about our learning development videos, et cetera. And, and it's a real lesson for me because I'm terrible. You know, my webinars go on for hours. Um, so I'm trying to do these uh, five-minute Monday things, you know, and it's a real discipline isn't it you know to actually use it right down and um, but the feedback's been fantastic you know we just did one the first one this week and it's gone down so well Um, I feel quite embarrassed that I've been putting these things out for 30 minutes 45 minutes Uh, so we're going to have to be you know little little and often so anything else anything else that you're doing
1: yes first of all is that how we rethink our activities Because of course during COVID we focused a lot on personal well-being of our people, but because we're a beauty company and we actually sell the wellness products, you know, we did a lot of activities before for our employees. We have community. So what was interesting for us that we could start doing what we offered in the offices, we could start doing virtually without any problems. So during the COVID, you know, we had joint yoga sessions, we had mindfulness sessions, we had special clubs, you know, for anti-stress handling. And we had those different things, both globally and regionally and locally, and it worked pretty well. And I must say that that was a fantastic learning for us. I think also it is interesting for our business going forward, and this definitely we will continue to explore. The next thing is that we, for five years ago, started a format that is called the CEO Connect. It's sort of a hybrid between the interview with the CEO, Q&A, and the town hall and we uh, held it once a year and the main thing here was that every single employee in Oriflame could ask our CEO Magnus question any question and you can ask it openly you can ask it anonymously and Magnus would answer so previously we asked people to pre-send those questions and then we could take some questions live but because the technology wasn't there The majority of the questions sort of represent. It's not necessarily Magnus saw them in the beginning, but it was less transparency, I would say. But still, the the concept was good and people loved it. So during COVID, we understood that we need to know how our people feel. We need to know what on people's minds and we need to give the guidance and the clear message where we are, what we are doing, how we're handling the situation. So what we started to do is that we started to run those CO connects that actually cost us a lot of money before we, because we did them through broadcasting companies. Uh, yeah. To run them on teams. You yeah. know, it's live. And we started to do them first every second week. And then when the crisis was a bit milder, we started to do every third week. So it became like once a month. And what was interesting there, because with the new technology, people don't need to present any questions. They can type them live. And then, you know, you can moderate the session and people like the questions and then you can start asking from most popular. But because the technology is so good, you actually have time and we usually have from one hour to one hour and a half of answering question session. So we could cover all the questions. And what we noticed is like that it was much better than those normal Pulse surveys. Because in a Pulse survey, you, you ask people how they are. And then they give you an answer, but then the, um, the time between you come back to them, yeah. you know, with, with your reaction on the answers, it's pretty lengthy. And not everybody actually comes back, because usually some sort of summary about how people feel in general. Here I felt that we could both cater for the individuals, because we could take individual questions, and we could deliver answers immediately, honest answers, and when our... CEO didn't have an answer, he just said it openly, you know, I don't know, but we'll come back to you, you know, we will look into it. Thank you very much for your proposal. But then, you know, people sort of felt that we are transparent, yeah. we are here for them. And if we don't know, we don't know together. If yeah. you, you know yeah. know what I mean? yeah. so it became a fantastic experience, and I think we are going to continue with them. Of course, now with COVID, we are still continuing once a month but then we will see but maybe once a quarter at least and i must say that now we don't need town halls anymore because this is such a better uh, format and we don't need those lengthy presentations again it's enough to do a very quick 5 minute update on how a company is feeling or on a topic that we choose yeah. then you just sort of shoot with questions because that is really what is close to people and people want to know
0: it's interesting uh, on a previous podcast okay. we did uh, had a conversation with uh, amy uh, the HR director at Discovery, and she said exactly the same thing. They're not going to go back to these big set pieces of town halls. They're just going to use this because it's more immediate, it's fresher, it's, you can do more of them because they're less costly and less of a logistical nightmare. Um, and I think this is just one of the things that we're seeing, this kind of increased level of leadership interaction, openness, transparency, um, which, you know, who wants to lose that? I think, we're no, nearly out, I think we're nearly out of time, Elena. Um, it's been such a treat talking to you again. And Thank you very of, much. Full of energy, as you always were. <laughs> and no doubt, when we catch up again, you'll have done tons more. Um, so I look forward to staying in touch. You stay safe. Thank you very much. And the same- right. Take care now. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club